Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. We are continuing our series this morning in the book of John, and we've been watching as Jesus engages different people in a variety of different ways, and we're seeing here that he tailors his approach to the unique individual in front of him so that he can give that person what they need in order to see who he really is. And what we're learning there is that this is, there is no one-size-fits-all approach to introducing people to Jesus. And that just makes sense. Each one of us is different. We have different needs, different interests, different desires. And we need to know that Jesus can actually come to us individually and speak to the needs, the interests, the desires that each one of us has. Now, in today's passage, one of the things that you see about some people's uniqueness is that they need time to process their experience with Jesus that they don't encounter him, hear about him, experience him, and then make an immediate decision to follow him. Instead, they need time. They need to work through what that experience was like. They need to make sense of it. They need to think about it. They need to ruminate and talk about it before making Jesus the organizing center of their life. They need time to work through a process of coming to faith. And that's not something that you hear in many American evangelical churches. We tend to downplay the importance of process, and we urge people instead, make a decision now. It's an emphasis that you can trace back into the mid-1800s, something that came out of what we call the Second Great Awakening. The Second Great Awakening was a significant revival movement. It swept across the U.S. Many, many people came to genuine faith in the Lord. And during that time, preachers would urge the people in front of them, make a decision for the Lord. And that's similar to several of the sermons that you can find in the book of Acts. Turn from your life of sin right now and ask for God's mercy so that you and he can be friends. That style of coming to Christ is biblical. It's how some people do come to Christ, but it's not the only way that people come to Christ. Not the only way in the Bible, not the only way in the book of Acts, not the way here in John chapter 9. Instead, there's often a process of someone coming to that decision more slowly, coming to see a little bit more clearly who Jesus is, gradually understanding what that means for their life, and then deciding whether they'll love him and obey him. Each one of us still has to get to the point where we make that decision at some point, the decision that says, do I embrace Jesus for who he is, or do I reject him? But that decision comes differently, comes in different amounts of time for each of us. For some people, that process can literally take place in a matter of minutes. The curve is really sharp, it's really pointed before you find yourself making that decision. For other people, the curve is much more gradual, and it's filled with countless numbers smaller of smaller decision points that lead you to that place where you say, yes, Jesus really is the Son of God, the one that God sent into the world so that I could be friends with him. I believe. The slope of the curve is different for different people. Now, how is this helpful to us? Well, two ways. It can be helpful to you individually, and it can be helpful to you, secondly, as you think about other people. Since the scripture speaks of both curves, one sharper, one more gradual, since both are valid, you don't have to compare yourself with anybody else, trying to figure out, am I doing this right? Am I finding Jesus the right way? Am I just like everybody else? You won't be like everybody else. You can't be. You're unique, and so the way that you come to Jesus is also going to be unique. That might be hard for some of us because many of us try to fit in. We don't want to stand out. We want to know that our curve is like everybody else, that we are doing this the right way. John chapter 9 teaches us a different question, teaches us to ask instead, 
where am I on my curve? What is Jesus trying to show me about himself that I need to see at this point in time? Because frankly, he's the one that I need to fit in with, not everybody else. And so as you think about a process of believing, of coming to faith over time, it can be helpful to you if you're still making up your mind about whether you want to follow Jesus or not. You don't worry about what anybody else's curve looks like. You think about what the next step is on, is on your curve. Secondly, however, it's also helpful if you're trying to introduce other people to Jesus. Maybe your friends or your relatives, your parents, your children. You recognize they're also utterly unique. And so thinking about a process helps you start to ask, well, what is it that they need to see at this point in time in their life? It helps you approach people in more diverse ways, ways that fit them better based on who they are, ways that are a little bit more like how Jesus would approach them. So we want to look at this process today in order to understand it a little bit better, this process of coming to faith. And so we're going to look at three things. First, we want to see God's part in this process. We want to see what he does. Second, we want to think about the process itself. What is it that this process can actually look like? And then thirdly, we want to see what the payoff of the process is. We want to see where this process is headed. What is its goal? So first, let's see what God's part is in the process. Second, let's look at the process itself. And third, we'll take a look at the payoff of the process. First, what is God's part? What does he do in this process? You see two things in this chapter. Number one, you see that he sets the stage of your life, the stage that provides the raw materials of the process. And secondly, he engages you personally. So let's look at the stage setting piece first. John chapter 9, Jesus encounters a man who was born blind. That would be crushing to any set of parents to have their child born blind. That's the kind of thing that you worry about when you're pregnant. Will my baby be okay? Is he or she going to develop the way that I hope they are? You, you, you worry that they might not. But it's also something that you tend to push out of your mind. Unless you know otherwise, you make plans to have a healthy child, someone who's going to have normal baby needs, not extraordinary baby needs. And you dream about all the things that you're going to do with this child based on what other babies and other children do. So put yourself in these parents' place some 2,000 years ago and imagine the shock for them as their child was born blind. In a moment, all of their fears came true. And in the same moment, all of their dreams crumbled. Again, hard for any parent, but way harder in that society. Because this child, this image of God, was born into a world without a social safety net. His particular disability meant that his only option for survival was going to be to beg from other people for the rest of his life. The only hope that he had to live was whether or not people gave him the scraps from their own lives. And you look at that, and it's very tempting to ask, well, well who's responsible for this? Who caused it? You think, well, the, Bill, that's kind of a foolish question. No one did. Be very careful if that's the way your mind is tempted to go. Because then the next question follows... So then this was from God. God picked this man out, sentenced him to a life of poverty and destitution that he didn't cause and can't escape. The rabbis of that day did not want to say that. No, no one wants to say that. It makes God sound like he's the author of evil. He isn't. 
but how can you say he's good if he lets something like this happen? The way that people wrestled through that is they fell back on a moralistic worldview, a view that said, do good and you'll be blessed. Do evil and you'll suffer. It's a moralistic worldview. Do good and you'll get good stuff. Do bad things and bad things will happen to you. Just kind of makes sense. Sounds like what would you would expect from living in a moral universe with a God who is just and who loves justice. Do good and good will happen to you. Do bad things and you will suffer. But then people said, you know what? We can probably read this in reverse as well. If you're blessed, what does that mean? It means God likes you. He's showering good stuff on you, which means what? You must have been doing good. And if you're suffering, well, then God is clearly punishing you, which means that you're bad. If you're blessed, you're righteous. If you're suffering, you're a sinner. Logic is compelling. It sounds right until you come to a person who was born blind. And then you have to wonder, well, clearly the child is suffering. So who is it that sinned? Was it the baby? Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense. What could it have done in the womb that was so bad that this is warranted? Its parents? Well, that doesn't make a lot of sense because they're the ones who ought to be suffering, not their child. See where the disciples here have gotten themselves into a confused place. Verse 2, they want to know who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. We can't put this at God's feet. Now, there's something wrong with their logic, and it's because they've taken some of the Bible's teaching but not all of it. The Bible is very clear. All sin will cause disruption in some form or other in your life. That's what sin does. You cannot take red-hot coals of evil, scoop them into your lap, and not get burned. All sin will disrupt your life in some way. But not all disruption in your life is the result of sin. That's the whole point of the book of Job. There are times when God lets things happen to you that can only be described as suffering, Th things that are bad, things that you would never ask for, things, however, that you didn't cause. The Bible teaches there are times when righteous people suffer and they did not bring it down on their own heads. Corollary is also true. There are times when wicked people prosper. That's the point of Psalm 73, that God causes good gifts to come to people who are wicked. It's not as a reward. He's not rewarding them for their wickedness. It's not because they're good. It's because he's good. So sometimes bad things happen to good people. Sometimes good things happen to bad people. God takes responsibility for both without himself becoming bad in the process. Now, why does he do that? Johnny Erickson Tata has said it really well in a number of her books. She puts it this way, quote, God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Let me say that again. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Now, that's true regardless of who says it, but from her, coming from her, it has a lot of extra weight. Johnny broke her neck in a diving accident when she was a teenager. She's now lived in a wheelchair as a quadriplegic for over 50 years. So it really means something when she says, God is sovereign in all things, sovereign even in times of suffering, and he's still good. Let me urge you, if you've not yet read her book, When God Weeps, you really should. It's a, it's a theology of suffering that is very readable, very compassionate, and also very compelling. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. 
So if this man's suffering is not the direct result of his sin or his parents' sin, and Jesus says it's not, that's because God has allowed it to bring about his own good purposes. Or in Jesus' words, verse 3, that the works of God might be displayed in him. In other words, Jesus says there's purpose here. God's purpose in the details and the backstory of this man's life. There is purpose that makes all of the details of his life necessary to what God is doing. Which means that God makes all of the details of your life necessary to what he's doing. That's what you see here as the account plays out. It's this man's tragedy. It's his blindness that puts him in the direct path of the Messiah. The Messiah who heals him. A healing that isn't just physical, but it's also spiritual. A healing that leads him to see who Jesus really is. That leads him to belief. That leads him to worship. And he thinks that what he has now seen is great. He doesn't spend a single moment in this chapter complaining about his life. Complaining about what he's had to live with. He's just experienced God single him out and walk to where he is simply to care about him and to do so in a way that would be really meaningful, most meaningful to him. You have the same thing in your life. There are countless things that have happened to you in your life that you didn't want. Things that looked like setbacks at the time. Things that the Lord intends to use to bring you to himself because it's in those things, those things that you didn't want, that you'll see him like you couldn't in any other way. Think, man, Bill, that's, that's kind of a hard sell. That's hard to swallow. Well, think about this man again. He ends up with a great life that no one could have predicted on the day that he was born. Why? Because of what he was born with. There's purpose here. Is he going to spend one moment in eternity regretting the years that he didn't see things on earth? You realize, no, <laughs> he's not. He sees Jesus. He sees the one who is infinitely greater than anything else he could have seen before. He sees the source of everything that he could have seen. It's no regret. And if you think I'm just speculating, let me quote from Johnny again. After spending decades in a wheelchair, she says that she has learned things about God and about his purposes that are, quote, so satisfying, so pleasurable, that she wouldn't trade the wheelchair for anything. God sets the stage in your life. He takes responsibility for all the details of your life, including the things that you rather wouldn't have in your life. And he does that for a purpose, to bring you to himself. And when he does, you will not feel cheated. You're going to feel like you're the luckiest person on the earth. That's part of what God does in this process. Second part of what God does in this process is that he engages you personally. You can see that here in several different ways. Verse 6, Jesus heals the man. Verse 35, when he hears that the Jewish leaders have cast him out of the synagogue, Jesus goes and looks for him. He finds him. Verse 37, he reveals himself fully to the man. God is actively involved in his world. He uses all the parts of your life. He redeems all the suffering of your life, uses all of it to come near to you and show you who he is. And the question then for you is, is that the way you live? Do you, do, do you live expecting that? Do you expect him to do that for you? Do you expect him to do that for others? Now, parents, let me talk to you for just a moment. I've talked with a lot of you lately. I'm hearing the same thing over and over. You're concerned for your children for this next upcoming school year. 
and you want to know whether they're going to be safe. You want to know whether they're going to get an education that's worth having. You, you w are we wondering whether they'll get the socialization that they need, and you're wondering whether or not you're going to get anything done based on where they do and don't go to school. And I get it. Sally and my boys are older, but we have all the same thoughts and same concerns for them as they're getting ready to go back on campus this fall. Those concerns that you have, those concerns that I have, are completely valid. But let me ask you, and I'm going to challenge myself at the same time that I'm asking you, are you looking for God to redeem everything in the life of your child? And not just when their education is threatened, but are you looking for God to redeem everything that threatens your plans for them? Everything that threatens your hopes and your dreams for them? Are you looking for God to use the unpleasant things, the unhappy things, the setbacks, the suffering in their lives to show them himself? Are you looking for him to do that? Because Jesus is. That's what he's looking for. Or students, let me talk to you for a moment. School will not be the same this year. I don't care whether you're in elementary school, junior high, senior high, college, grad school. Doesn't matter. School will not be the same. It's not your fault. Neither you nor your parents sinned that this is happening to you. But how are you looking for God to redeem it? Are you looking for him to step into your life when it's not what you want and to use that unwanted thing to bring about his plans and his purposes in your life like nothing else could? Are you looking for him to do that? Because Jesus is. That's what he's looking for. It's true for everybody in every area of life. Are you looking for God to redeem the setback in your career that you didn't cause? Jesus is. Are you looking for him to redeem the heartbreak in your marriage that you didn't cause? Jesus is. He's active in each and everything that he allows in your life. And his purpose is to show you himself, to bring you to a place where you see him bigger and better than you ever thought that he could. Better than you ever knew that he was. That's point one. In order to understand the process of believing, you first have to see God's part in the process. Second, let's think about the process itself. Or maybe more narrowly, we'll think about the process that this man takes. Look at how he talks about Jesus. Verse 11, he's asked how he was healed, and he identifies the source of his healing as the man called Jesus. He made mud, he anointed my eyes, he told me to go wash. Who's Jesus? Initially, he's a man, very special man, one who cares about people, who goes out of his way to be helpful, but he's a man. But then this formerly blind man gets pushed a little. The Pharisees are gathering data on Jesus, and initially they're undecided. They're, they're not sure. Is he a bad man? Is he a good man? Is he a bad man because he breaks our rules for the Sabbath? Or is he a good man because he's healing people? He's working the works of God. He's restoring the world back to what it should be. They're not yet sure. Is he good? Is he bad? So they ask the man, verse 17, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And the man responds, he is a prophet. Now that's interesting because nothing else has happened to the man in between his two explanations. But as he tells the story and as he hears himself explaining it, he's realizing, no, so something is going on here. I, I, I'm missing something. Jesus is not just a special man. 
He's a special religious man, one with an inside track to God. He's a prophet. There's development here in his thinking. There's progress in his understanding of who Jesus is. Pharisees press a little bit harder. They don't like where this is going. They call in his parents. His parents dodge the question. So the Pharisees go back to the man a second time, and they tell him, verse 24, give glory to God, which is a way of saying, fess up, tell the truth. We know that this man is a sinner. The former blind man doesn't back down, doesn't change his story. Instead, as they press him, as they say to him, verse 29, we do not know where Jesus comes from. The man who has been given sight says, really? I do. It, it's obvious. Verse 33, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. His understanding has grown again. Jesus is not simply a special religious man. He's a special religious man who comes from God. He's been sent by God. He has a mission and a purpose that goes beyond what other prophets have. Pharisees kick the man out. They've had enough of him, but Jesus hasn't had enough of him. He finds the man, asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? That's a reference to a vision that the prophet Daniel had in the Old Testament. Daniel saw a human figure who was exalted to a seat alongside God. A human figure, according to N.T. Wright, who was given the task of bringing God's judgment to the world. It's a figure that the Jewish nation was looking for. So when Jesus asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? He's asking, are you ready to trust the one who will bring God's judgment to this earth? And the man is all in. He says, verse 36, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Point him out. I trust you after all you've done for me. Point him out, and I'm there. And then when Jesus says, you've seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you, the man says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. He worshipped him. This Jewish man who grew up in Israel, a society that was super clear, you worship God and God alone, no other gods, and certainly not a human being. This man gets it. He's looking at the human figure who can sit in God's presence. The human figure who is able to fully render God's judgment in all of its justice and in all of its holiness. And he's standing right here, right now. This man is looking at the human figure and he gets it. Jesus is not simply a special religious man sent from God. He is God. The man gets it. It took a process to get there. He had to explain himself multiple times. He had to wrestle with people who didn't like his explanation. But in that process, his understanding increased. He's working it out. He's interacting with this God who comes to him. His understanding has increased, his desire increased. Despite what it, was cost, what it cost him, he was willing to lose the human community that he had known. He was thrown out of the synagogue because he found a better community, one that was too important to him to let go. That process of a growing understanding, a deepening desire, is normal. It's something that many people go through, something that you can even watch happen Sometimes when you talk to someone about Jesus, when you show them how good he is and what he's like, you can see a change take place in how they're approaching him. They might start off resistant, maybe even apathetic. You know, someone invites them to church or they feel like they have to go and they start out frowning. 
board. But then it's not as bad as they thought it was going to be, and so they're open to going again. And they do. Different kind of attitude. They meet a couple Christians, and they're surprised. The people that they meet are thoughtful. They're engaged with the larger world. They're talking about how does what Jesus has said actually help them understand this world and what it means for them. They discover Christians that they can't quite figure out, but Christians that they actually think they could like. Or a crisis in their life makes them ask for advice. They discover the Bible has something helpful to say to them. And over time, those initial frowns turn less frowny. You can see it happen. Apathy gives way to curiosity. Curiosity deepens into interest. Interest starts to look like desire. That's normal. As you see more of Jesus, you start to figure out who he is. And as you understand him better, you realize he's really attractive. And when that happens, you want him more than you used to. That's normal. So think about the people that are around you and ask yourself, what do they need to see of Jesus next? Parents, I'm going to talk with you again directly. What do your children need to see next? Are they worshiping Jesus? Are they making him the center of their life? Are, are they referencing every part of their life back to him? Are they organizing all of life around him? If not, think carefully. What is it about him that they need to see next? Do they see that he's someone special who comes close to them, someone who cares about them and who cares about their struggles like nobody else does? If they don't see that, help them see that about Jesus. Or take the next step in the man's progress. Do, the do your children see that Jesus is a prophet? That he's someone who has a direct line to God who can bring God's power to bear on their life? If they don't see that, help them see that. Or if they have seen that Jesus is a prophet, do they have a sense that he is the one sent by God to them? That he's not an impersonal religious figure, but that he has things directly to say to them? If they don't see that, help them see that. Or if they've seen all of that, do they know Jesus as the Son of Man who will bring God's judgment, and yet he introduces himself first as the healer, as the one who heals a broken world, a judge who restores people before he judges? Parents, you need to think carefully about where your kids are in the process, about what might be helpful for them to see next. You need to think carefully about how to show them that next side of who Jesus is. Don't let yourself think, oh man, you know, that, 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 that's way too much work. <laughs> that, that, that's way too involved. I like my kids, but, but isn't this the job of the church? No, it isn't. What's the job of the church? The jo job of the church is to help you do your job. God gives a primary responsibility to you for your kids because nobody knows them like you do. Nobody knows what they need like you do. And frankly, what you're doing with your kids is really no different from how we are supposed to be treating all of the people around us. The way that you think about what your children need is the same way that you need to think about what the people around you need. Your responsibility to your community does not begin and end by inviting people to church. Please do that. They, they need to be invited. But God has planted you in specific locations, planted you in your family, planned you in your job, planned you in your neighborhood. He's planned you there because he wants to reach those people through you. What's that mean for us renewal, at Renewal Mainline? It means that he's put you in the Philadelphia suburbs for a purpose. 
He wants to reach middle to upper middle class professionals. And the way that he intends to do that is by them meeting other thoughtful, successful people who believe in Jesus, who have reasons for believing in Jesus. He wants the people that he has surrounded you with to meet you, to meet you because they can connect with you, they can identify with you. He wants them to meet you because what they really need is to meet him. And they need that introduction through you. That's why you're here. That's why you need to take time to think, what does my neighbor, my colleague, my classmate, my roommate, my child, what do they need to see about Jesus next? What might help them understand Jesus more clearly and want more of him? So first, you need to understand God's part in the process. Second, you need to understand the process itself. And third, you need to understand the point of the process. Very simply, it's so that you get to the place where you worship what you should worship. Lots of worship happening in this passage. Lots of people valuing things highly, wrapping their worlds around them. The Pharisees, what do they value? They, they, they love their rules. They love keeping the rules. Now, why is that? Because it puts them in a category that's different from everybody else. And you hear that really clearly when they insult the man. Verse 34. They say to him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? In that moment, they could not have been clearer. You have nothing to say to us, nothing to teach us about the nature and the character of God. You were born in utter sin. And the implication is, we were not. We share nothing with you. We're in a different category from you. We're better than you. Why do they love their rules so much? They think it makes them better than other people. It gives them an identity that they want. They're the good people. They're the godly people. They're the people who are above reproach. They're the people who see correctly, who see what's right. They're the people who do what's right. They, they are the people who are right. They're worshiping. But what they're worshiping is not the Lord. And you see it as their arrogance captures them. They can't stand to listen to this man, and they misuse their power to hurt him. See, if you worship being right, being better, being special, you're not able to handle it when someone doesn't treat you like you think you should be treated. Pharisees are worshiping. What they're worshiping has nothing to do with God. Man's parents are also worshiping. Pharisees call them to testify. They know this is their son. They can say that. They know that he was born blind. They can say that. They probably know that Jesus healed him. They can't say that. Verse 22, they're afraid of the consequences of saying that. Verse 22, they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, to be the one that God sent to rescue his people, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Man's parents are afraid. They're afraid of what they might lose. And make no mistake, that was a real cost that they were looking at. If you were cut off from the synagogue, you were cut off from the community as well. It meant that you were no longer part of the community, and his parents don't want that. They want to be included. They're so afraid of what others might think of them or of how others might treat them that they swallow their integrity, they throw their son under the bus. They tell the Pharisees, verse 21, ask him, <laughs> he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Everyone here is worshiping something. You realize that's true because everyone always worships something. You can't help it. They can't help it, you can't help it, I can't help it. 
but there are better and worse things to worship. The parents worship being included by the people around them. They worship fitting in without realizing that the community that they want to fit into so badly is temporary. One day that community is going to be gone. They themselves will die. The people in their community will die. And on that day, the only community worth having, the only friendship worth having, will be with God. But they don't care about that when the Pharisees question them. They worship being included. The Pharisees worship their rightness, and they judge all others by their own standard. But one day, they're going to be judged. And on that day, what is going to be most important is not whether they can call someone else a sinner. What's going to be most important is what God calls them, whether he calls them guilty or not guilty. There's only one person in this passage who worships what they will never lose and who worships what will not hurt him. And that's the man who used to be blind. And he does that despite everything that it cost him. Think about what's happened since Jesus entered his life. His neighbors have dragged him off to the Pharisees who interrogated him. His parents hung him out to dry because they're afraid of what might happen if they spoke up for him. He's been thrown out of the synagogue, cut off from the foundational part, most foundational part of his society. He's learned that this lifelong disability that he has comes directly from God. After all of that, why would he think that it's such a great thing to meet Jesus? It's because in Jesus, he's experienced something that he never experienced before. He counts. He's worthwhile. He's valuable. He has dignity in ways that he never did before. For his entire life, he's been told every day, you have no value. You have nothing to contribute. At best, you're living on the edge of society. You're a parasite. You live off of everyone else. He counts so little in his world that his neighbors, his parents, his religious leaders all cut him off without a second thought. But God didn't. The source of all life, the source of all light, the source of all health, the source of all community wrapped himself up in a body and walked directly to where that man was to care about him, to heal him to heal him physically, to hear, heal him spiritually. This man who never saw anything in his life opened his eyes and saw God, a God who wanted to help him. He saw the one who was appointed to bring God's judgment, who held judgment back in that moment, who restored him instead, who came to rescue God's people at great personal cost to himself. This man saw a judge who would first himself be judged. He saw a judge who would hang suspended between earth and heaven, cut off from every community, human and divine, hung there on a cross while people mocked him while the Father forsook him. And he would hang there until this man's sin was judged so completely that there was nothing left. So Jesus would sit next to the Father and say, Father, this man formerly blind, is not guilty. In the words of verse 41, his guilt does not remain. He belongs with us. What did that man see that day? He saw a God who wanted him. That's why he worshiped. Worship is the recognition you will never see anything better in the universe than this God. Worship is the awareness that 
deep down inside of you that you cannot wrap yourself around anything more worthwhile than a God who cares this much about you. Worship is what happens when you get to be with God and you see him regardless of what it costs you to get to that place. Worship happens when you realize that God will spare no expense, neither on his end or on yours, that he will literally do anything to make sure that you're with him forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for expending that kind of cost because you have that kind of love, that kind of concern for people. Thank you, Lord, that your passion and your desire is to reveal yourself to us in all the areas of our life. Lord God, will you do that? Will you let us see how involved you are? Will you let us see how good you are? And then, Lord, will you set our hearts free so that we can worship you even now in Jesus' name? Amen.